here we are. How are you doing today? I'm tired. Same. How are you doing? Good. I have a beer for the first time. Wow. I, feel like I have a while. coffee today. Look at that. I can't remember the last time I had a beer on the podcast. It's been a while. It's been the since the before video days. Mm, yeah. Because usually, as of late, we've been recording often, somewhat often, on weekend mornings. The best time Obviously. for beer. Best time for beer. Of course. Of course. We are back after a hiatus that no one noticed because I went on a trip and I scheduled the last episode, episode 69, Dragon Inn and Goodbye Dragon Inn to uh, come out last Wednesday. And so now we're back on schedule. Schedule. This week with episode 70 of the Split Take podcast. Hooray. We're on YouTube again, uh, officially this time. And just want to make a few notes that if you are watching on YouTube, please uh, like, subscribe, uh, comment. I'm sure we'll have some hot takes in this uh, review discussion somewhere. So uh, let us know how we're wrong. Uh, Please do. And then uh, the other thing is I have been notified that sometimes we tend to ramble about things that are not on subject. I mean. What is the subject? Give me names. Who's talking shit? Uh, my dad. My dad. <laughs> anyway, okay, one of his criticism suggestions is that we tend to, I think, specifically relating to our uh, weekly movie movie check in section. That's fair. Kind of, to, which I think is not an incorrect uh, comment to make about the podcast, uh, but not necessarily correct. So I would like to make a mention here. That on YouTube, and I will try to do this for the podcast on Spotify and on the website, uh, but specifically on YouTube so far over the past couple of YouTube episodes, I have been doing like chapters for the podcast mm-hmm. and very specifically like labeling on those videos what we're talking about when we're talking about them and all that. So you can skip ahead if you don't uh, mind to hear those conversations. I will try to uh, include those time codes on uh, in the show notes on spotify and for the audio only version so mm-hmm. if you're uh, not into the whole movie diary thing then you can um skip it skip right to our discussion of the two movies today one is the uh blow up that's not that's not the the tab i was looking for uh the first movie is uh blow out from 1981 brian de palma and our second movie which is the bfi sight and sound 2012 uh, list movie of the week is Blow Up from 1966, directed by Antonioni. Antonioni. Uh, so that will be our, our main discussions happening later. But before we get to that, as always, I'm very curious to hear what Chandler has been up to while I have been away on vacation. It's true. You've been you have not watched a lot of movies. I've been doing the heavy lifting two weeks. I think I've watched like three movies, maybe. Yeah, let's see. There we go. Be, I'll be quick. Um. First one I watched, uh, my neighbor is the Yamadas. That is one uh, of my. It's it's one of those under the radar Studio Ghibli films, and one that I think should get more attention, but doesn't. It's very cute. Um, I just went. I was just going through whatever Ghibli movies I haven't seen on HBO Max. Uh, I watched it. It's essentially Japanese Peanuts. They're a little comic strip family in the movie. It's not, there's no real structure. It's just a bun- bunch of little short stories with this family. 
Uh, I watched the dub, which is great. It has Molly yeah. Shannon and Jim Belushi of <laughs> Twin Peaks fame. Uh, it was very cute, very simple. I have no complaints. None of the stories were annoying. I thought they were all very lovable characters. And it's got a, a very innocent sense of humor that I'm surprised I found as funny as I did. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I, I seem to remember that it was uh, it had some deceptively uh, complex uh, commentary. I don't want to say commentary, but lessons about just like family life and, and yeah. living and stuff like that. And um, I specifically remember isn't uh, the song K Sera Sera. They sing the that song. Yeah, at the, at the end, end of the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just a sweet Very little cute. film about uh, life, about families. And I think yeah. it has some uh Nothing necessarily to say, but just some commentary. It's very some good. It's vibes. comfortable. It's very yeah. comfortable. Yeah. Uh, I, I rewatched Ocean's Eleven. That's a damn near perfect movie. Not going to go into it. Haven't a, seen it in years. It's so good. It's very yeah. good. I'll take your word. It's for one it of the most efficient, it. efficient movies. Um, I watched a new movie, uh, Saint Maud. I don't know if you heard of this one. Was that from last year? Well, it just went on Hulu this year. Oh, so yeah. did we... Saint Maud. No, I I I typed Saint Maul, is in <laughs> Darth Maul from the prequels. M A U D. I remember this. Oh wait, this is a 2019 film. Well, technically, yes. We'll it's one of those that I'm sure it, it premiered at a few festivals in 2019. But it didn't get a wider release till 2020. Now it's on Hulu. So what did you think of Saint Maud? Well, when I saw the trailer, I kind of figured I knew what it was going to be about. Just a a psychotic young woman who is way too into religion. And uh, that's exactly what it was. Hmm. It's fine. (laughs) Okay. If I, I find this kind of stuff very interesting, but it's one of those movies that um until the literally very last scene it didn't pull any punches wasn't really surprising in any way Hmm. i saw the trailer i thought it's gonna be exactly what i think it's gonna be i watched it and it was it's fine it's only like 82 minutes if you're looking for new stuff i recommend it uh i watched enter the dragon bruce lee bruce lee yep yes okay uh, I tried to watch North by Northwest. HBO Max's app is terrible, so I had to quit. Oh. I went into Netflix, and the first thing I saw was Enter the Dragon, and I thought, let's do it. Never seen a Bruce Lee movie before. And it was fun. Really? Never oh. seen one. Nope. Unless you count Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, which you don't, but... <laughs> uh, the thing about Enter the Dragon is it's very good, but the whole time I'm like, this is just a few inches away from being like a best of the worst movie. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. It has a lot of the staples being like a, a pretty nonsense plot, um, really bad ADR kind of cheesy dialogue, but it's good because Bruce Lee is amazing. The choreography is solid and the premise is so simple that it's kind of hard to fuck it up. But speaking of this, um, this this feeling that it was similar to a best of the worst movie, uh, I looked up this director's other work, and one of the things that he directed was Jim Cotta. 
Jim Cotta. What a poster there, too. Which, for anyone who's not familiar, Best of the Worst is the Red Letter Media series where they watch three terrible movies. Um, And Jim Cotta is... Sometimes, yes. And Jim Cotta is a movie um, about Kurt Thomas, who is a, a U.S. Olympic athlete. But he's a gymnast, and they built a movie around him, and it's kind of horrible. But now I know why the best of the worst vibes are there. Uh, I rewatched a bunch of stuff. Effer Fake, Chunking Express, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. All great great movies. Any any additional thoughts on Friends of Eddie Coyle? Just curious, as you know, Effer Fake, clearly a masterpiece. Clearly Express, clearly also a masterpiece. But... Friends of Eddie Coyle, that's kind of a, a low-key Friends, film. Not a lot of- it is. Friends of it. I I much prefer the the Goodfellas, Sopranos-type gangster movies where they show it for what it is, just a bunch of shitty people doing shitty things to each other. And this is... The, the Friends of Eddie Coyle is essentially a movie about a bunch of people lying and ratting on each other, which I think is a lot more indicative of the reality of gangster life. And it's interesting because it was released by the same studio that released The Godfather a year after The Godfather. So you have one, this operatic auteur picture, of, you know, drawing parallels between mafia and, you know, their status is like demigods. And then you have Eddie Coyle, which is just a bunch of old people. <laughs> Sad old people. Sad old people doing crimes and going to jail for it. I really like it because I really like Robert Mitchum. He's kind of one of my favorite actors. And I just, I don't know. I could watch this movie three times in a row. Uh, Going through real quick here. I also watched, I finished Paranoia Agent. This is a very good miniseries by uh, Satoshi Kon. Anime? Uh, Yep, anime series. Satoshi Kon, 13 episodes. It's very trippy. It's very much in line with blue, uh, perfect blue and um, uh, paprika. Uh, I don't, not really much to say because it's a whole series, so it, you haven't seen it. I'm not going to go too into it, uh, but I definitely recommend it. Uh, I watched Profile, which is a movie about a woman who does a. It's a movie that takes place entirely on a computer screen about a woman who hmm. uh, poses as a. Uh, a Muslim tr- woman trying to join ISIS. The entire movie hinges on this idea that this lady would fall in love with this uh, ISIS recruiter. Uh, but one of the first things that they show is this ISIS recruiter uh, assisting in the murder of children. I, It's so dumb. It's very even, dumb. Even child murderers can be loved, Chandler. Well, that's that's no. the message. It's a heartwarming message of love and death. I finally got around to watching The Exorcist 3. Mm. It's very good. Is it? Very good. I, I was surprised. William Peter Blatty has only directed two movies, and I want to see his other one uh, called The Ninth Configuration. Um, and they're both religious there some genuinely disturbing imagery in this movie, like more so than I was expect. Like, I know it's an exorcist movie, but this one is kind of creepier than the original exorcist. Well, I mean, even the original exorcist, I, by today's standards, we would not call that like a creepy film. I don't know anyone. There are some really scary parts, but yeah. Is it, are there but scary? Yes. yes. Mm. I think so. I don't. I don't scary, so. scary and creepy are different to me. Exorcist is scary. 
Exorcist 3 is creepy. Very creepy. Okay. Like they have this dream sequence that feels feels Lynchian, but not in a copycat kind of way. I recommend it. Very spooky. Um, George C. Scott is amazing. I love him and everything. I just like I just like hearing him yell. Uh, <laughs> He's good at but that. He is. Uh, but finally, I'm going to bridge the gap between us and talk about a movie that I saw that you saw, uh, which is The Woman in the Window. Oh, yes. I forgot <laughs> about this discussion. This is our, our bonus. Every episode nowadays, like last episode, it was um, Tenant. Tenant. We have a, a bonus duo conversation. So it's kind of almost like reviewing three movies these days, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Who knows? So Woman in the Window. Uh, it's a new movie. That much we can say for certain. That is that is the best praise I can give it. It is new. <laughs> if you like new, new if new is a is a positive quality in and of itself for you, then perhaps uh, you should watch it. In, in literally no other context should you watch this. No. So this movie I was interested because I find it fascinating just how many just the recent fall of Amy Adams. Because I feel like she's been in some really good stuff, but in the last two or three years, it's been nothing but garbage. You had uh, the Justice League, which I know technically wasn't, you know, recent. Well, I'm not going to say that because we already talked about the Justice League. But, you know, like Hillbilly Elegy, uh, Vice, just Mm. this. And I knew going into it that I wasn't going to like it. Sure. To be fair about Vice, though, that's like a... Adam McKay is a actual director. Yes. And so like if you were saying if like an actor is looking for roles and looking for good roles, she just got unlucky with that one because it just happened to be a meh movie. Uh there are of course other roles that have been picked that are like why did you choose that one? Yeah. It's just clearly not but a good But the thing movie is from the, start. The, the guy who directs this though, he's an he's He's done some stuff that's good. He did uh, Atonement. He did uh, Pride and Prejudice. Oh, I mean, these okay. are pretty good movies. But yeah, this I went into this knowing I wasn't going to like it, but I was under the impression that, OK, if I'm going to go into this not liking it, I'm going to be pleasantly surprised because that's usually what happens with these mm. kind of movies. I went into it hating it more than I thought I possibly could. Interesting. I, I went into it because you had sent a Snapchat to the group. Uh, notifying us that you were watching it and i was like oh i've heard of this i've heard it's not good and so it piqued my interest <laughs> and kind of like curiosity killed the cat sort of thing so i was like you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna watch it why not uh and i fully expected to i knew i wasn't it wasn't going to be good but i i thought that there was a decent chance that i was going to enjoy how not good it was which I kind of did at parts and other parts. Uh, it was kind of excruciating. It is. There's just there's so many things wrong with it that I, I don't even know where to begin. But the whole time this the concept for people who aren't aware is Amy Adams plays a a, a homebody agoraphobia agoraphobiac. Yeah, she's afraid of going outside. She's afraid of going outside. Who witnesses a murder from her apartment or what she thinks is a murder uh hmm, which this if it uh, sounds familiar 
I mean, this this relates to Rear Window, of course, because uh, it's yes. very clearly based on that. It's also based on a book. I didn't know if you knew that. Yes. It's an adaptation, uh, which itself was copied from something else. So I think there's like layers of copying going on here that are fantastic. Um, and apparently the author is a fraud. Don't, not my don't don't. Yeah, don't quote I've, me I've on heard- that. I've heard that the, the story revolving around the author is more interesting than the actual book. But at, by the time I finished the movie, I'm like, I don't want to know anything more about this. I, I was a little curious anyway. So I was trying to get at that. It, it, it's also kind of it shares some uh, some similarities with uh, Blow Up. It does. It does. So. More but connections. yeah, it's one of those things where you hear the concept and you're like, OK, that's very clearly a rear window. And I did. I. I, w- I went into it thinking, oh, I'm just going to be thinking about how good Rear Window is the whole time I'm watching it, mm. which happens, which happened right away because it opens with a scene of her watching Rear Window. Yeah, it, it doesn't shy away from the Hitchcock connection. Yeah, but then the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, OK, this is really dumb. And then in my brain, I'm like, this is why it works in Rear Window. So I can make a, a big laundry list of why it's inferior to rear window in every single way, but it, it's so similar to rear window that it's it, like blow up and blow out. We'll get to, but they're similar, but they're different enough that they don't feel like remakes of each other. Very different, like clearly inspired, by like they're inspired yes. by products. This is clearly a uh, copy and paste kind of deal. Yes. Which is fine. And it's not necessarily an issue on its own, but it is. An yeah. Issue here. Yeah, well, again, the copy and paste thing doesn't matter to me if you do something interesting. Like you right. could say uh, Halloween is copy and paste of Black Christmas and so many other slasher movies are copy and well, paste of Halloween. Know, a copy and but paste, it doesn't matter. Right. A copy and paste, you could just say, is a remake in a way. Yeah. yeah. Or and Yojimbo Fistful of Dollars. Right. Nothing wrong with that. But this is just it. <laughs> it's 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 not copy and paste. They copied it by hand. <laughs> But their handwriting is much worse. I also think like they they <laughs> copied and pasted things. And then sure, there are things that like you can point to and be like, this is doesn't work here, but it does work in rear window. And then I think the really bad stuff is the stuff that they added. Which, I mean, you can say, oh, this is rear window didn't have this. So this is why uh, it's better. But stuff they added that are, it has nothing to do with rear window at all is just that is where like like the psychological element of uh, a woman in the window just doesn't work at all. And it it starts off just being kind of like ugh, like nothing like meh, a big meh. And then about halfway through the movie, the whole psychological element that uh, Amy Adams is going through, like it becomes bad. It could becomes campy and not in a good way. And then the ending is just stupid. The, the final climax mm, is just. That's when I, I started enjoying it again because I was like, OK, now you've you. Well, when she gets hit in the face with a rake, that's where it gets funny. <laughs> you've gone too far. Like at that point, like there was there was a the first half of the film, which deals primarily with her, uh, with Amy Adams figuring out the murder kind of, but not really of, of her engaging with the clues. And then there's like a twist sort of in the middle where we get a, a revelation about her character that kind of um, derails the, the investigative plot for a little bit. 
until it reappears. Spoiler alert, I, I will include time codes so you can just kind of go through, but please don't worry about spoilers. You really don't need to watch this. Spoiler really alert, uh, the, the murder is the kid and he he arrives and gives an evil uh, monologue about how he's a serial killer and then they fight and he falls through glass and it's hilarious. <laughs> it is. <laughs> But it's funny because even that scene and there's like a dream sequence too that feel so Hitchcock. Like, I think mm. there's a night. I, a lot of this movie has already exited my brain, but there's like a nightmare dream sequence thing that feels like literally the same thing from Vertigo. And then mm. the way he falls through the screen looks the same way as that, that nightmare in Vertigo. And yeah. it's just it's so shameless. And everyone is overacting. Gary Oldman is just shouting. Mm. The I love time. it. Like I, I, Gary Oldman is one of those actors where he's just on screen and I don't care what he's doing. I, I don't know if you got this sense. I just liked Gary Oldman in the film. I, I did too. He was giving a decent I, performance, not necessarily a good performance, but yeah, something was there. And I, 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 I pin this on the direction entirely because there was a moment and I, I don't know if you caught this uh, or if anyone else did um there was a moment in the middle of the film where gary oldman delivers a line and his line delivery itself i could tell the answer to the film like i figured out the film by line delivery and by extension that was the wrong direction like i've never seen such clear a clear case of wrong direction by a director that i could like transparently tell I don't know if you know what this is, the scene I'm talking about. I don't about. think I do. Okay, so there's a scene in, maybe it's about like one third of the way through the movie where he enters Amy Adams, uh, her house. Yeah. And he shouts at her, stay away from my son. And I don't know if, if so I've taken a few directing classes in college and the, the, way you were taught to to like interact with actors is not like to tell them oh do this exactly but to like use verbs it's like to um anyway it doesn't matter but <laughs> yes like so here's here's your line and the director <laughs> i want you to to protect is the is the uh, the verb of like how you're going to do the line delivery and all that. And I could very clearly tell that Gary Oldman went from um, to threaten like his his actions were threatening beforehand. And then his line delivery, I they go back. I, I swear it's incredibly obvious if you know what you're looking for. Um, he goes from to threaten to protect, which is like a different set of verbs uh different it's a different verb not a seven verb um <laughs> and i could tell from the line that he was protecting his son not threatening her like yeah. th there's there's different motivations there and i could tell from the line delivery which i think he gave the correct line delivery and the director gave him the wrong action verb to go from and from that i was like oh it's the son because the dad's trying to protect the son also because the dad's too obvious as the murderer and that can't be the solution. This, this movie isn't clever enough to pull a, like a, like a, Oh, you didn't think it was the, the dad, but it was the dad, but it was actually, it's stupid. The whole thing's stupid, but I figured out about halfway through just yeah. from that line delivery. Like it's the son, isn't it? 
Also, the the idea that you could just replace the mom in our modern age, where every day is has some sort of digital footprint, is just ridiculous. Right. It's very selective in that, like it contrives the situation where like there's no media of this person at all except for the one piece of uh, evidence that our our main evidence the, the very blurry reflection in a <laughs> wine it's just so dumb and the thing yeah. is i i don't want to go through this whole thing and, and say why it doesn't work but a huge part of it is that amy adams is just annoying in this movie she is an annoying character and you don't start to really be on board with her until you realize halfway through what happened to her. But even then I'm not fully on board because I'm still just annoyed by her. You, character. you perhaps this, this is like when you're writing a script, you want their audience to empathize with the character, but we are sympathizing with her in like the last half. We're not like, yes, don't care. We're not with her on her story. Rather uh, we feel pity for her as a person rather than actually being invested in the plot and what she's trying to accomplish. Same thing with Julianne Moore's character, who, like, you know, her her disappearance she scene. She's so for one scene, she's also annoying. And I kind of liked uh, it. Like, I, I had this feeling like this is all we're going to see of her of Julianne Moore, isn't it? And I'm just going to enjoy it while it's here. Not that it was good. Don't don't take me no. as that giving it praise. I was just like, oh, hi, Julianne Moore. Who everyone, everyone except for uh, Gary Oldman was annoying. Also, um, uh, the, the two cops, mm. uh, uh, Brian Tyree Henry, who's the you know bigger, uh, blacker gentleman. I love that guy. He's mm. in Atlanta. He's one of the best parts of Atlanta. But all of the movies that he's been in have just been awful. What else has he, he was been? In, he's D- Godzilla versus Kong. <laughs> ah. He's the conspiracy ah. theory yeah. guy in Godzilla versus yeah. Kong. He's in this. Uh, while not an awful movie, he is also in Joker. He's like the guy who works at Arkham I mean, Joker's Asylum. Not. Godzilla versus Kong isn't a bad movie either, but it's well, but it's funny because the two characters, the two characters from Atlanta who have had like similarly expanding um, uh, film roles is you have Brian Tyree Henry, who I just told you is in all that stuff. And then mm-hmm. the other guy in Atlanta who went off is uh, uh, Lakeith Stanfield. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> who, you know, uncut gems, knives out. Yeah. Sorry to bother you. He's been in some great stuff. Uh, but then the other detective, I'm like, who is that woman? She looks so familiar to me. Mm. Lewin Davis's sister. <laughs> ah. That's an interesting jump in quality. <laughs> it's funny because I was looking, I'm like, I looked on Letterboxd who it was, and she only has like three credits, and one of them is Lewin Davis. I'm like, who is she? And yeah, then I look it up. Wow. But yeah. Woman in the Window. Uh, I don't recommend, not even for the laughs. It's just frustrating. It's like a it's a dumb psychological mystery. It's a mystery film, which is why I, I watched it. Because it, it's a but it's not your kind of mystery film. No, but I am. You know, I, I like the genre regardless. And it's tangentially related. So who cares? And uh, I do like Amy. I think Amy Adams. I do, too. She's a good actress. I just she's a very good actress. Yeah. Maybe she'll get some better roles at some point. She just really wants that Oscar. <laughs> She's desperate for that Oscar. You know what? Okay, so I will end with a positive note. I can say something positive about the film. Sort of. It does look nice. Sort it, of. It does, but it's wildly inconsistent. 
because I feel yeah. like they're doing the similar Hitchcock thing where they're really emphasizing the colors, specifically mm-hmm. the, the the like magenta pink stuff. But it feels so inorganic. Yeah, I was going to say it feels superficial. Yes, like it, pointed it feels, style. This is how I'm going to phrase my my positive note here. It is better than nothing. No, I agree. Um, and it's superficial. It uh, but it's there. Like I was at least like, <laughs> oh, this house looks nice, so I can I can pay attention to the nice the the woodwork and the nice lighting colored lighting on the woodwork but i also was like at the same time why well, I, I call it superficial is that the fact that it's lit and like it looks really nice a nice house and everything and it's colorful and vibrant this woman is depressed and you do you think that was the correct color scheme to go with to to visualize also her house her looks like a haunted mansion it's so dusty and grimy for like no reason I will say this. uh, It did give me infinitely more appreciation for Rear Window, and it's moved up in my top 50 favorite list. That's good. Because it's it's, it's probably my favorite Hitchcock, and now I want to watch it again. I've only seen it twice, and both times were in the theaters. Hmm. Wow. Wow. It is an amazing theater experience. Okay. I will hear what what I've I've watched, which isn't much. Wonderful. So. I rewatched Before Sunrise, 1995, Richard Linklater. First film of the Before Trilogy. And I... How, how, how to say this? Um, it's one of those movies where I think you have to be in the mood for it. Sort of. I'm talking about like general audiences. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. If you if you're in the in the mood for a really great relationship film, I I mean there's nothing better. Would you say that you need to be in the mood for love? I think you would, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but I was just I was feeling it this time around. I I I watched this on my trip, uh, showed my dad, and very 90% of the time I will recommend movies to my dad. I'm like, here's a movie. I liked it. 50-50 chance you're going to like it. He has a very interesting taste. Um, <laughs> this one, I was like, I know. I know he's going to like it. And I was right. I was right. Because it's a great film. If you don't like, if you don't like Before Sunrise. Um, so when I say you have to be in the mood, um, I've never not liked Before Sunrise. Yeah, I've never not thought it was a great movie. I've just not connected with it in the same way that I did this past viewing. And this past viewing, uh, it was previously at five stars, but it continued to be at five stars and got on my favorite movies list um, just because uh, I was there. I was vibing with it. And the Ethan Hawke and um, Julie Depley, uh, such great actors. I am so looking forward to, to watching the other two films in the trilogy. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Busy week getting back. I've been very tired. Um, I feel that anyway. it. It is one of the best criterions that I have, mm. and I definitely recommend it because the the way that they made this film is very interesting uh, because Richard Linklater based it on an experience and he basically just brought in both actors and they they rehearsed and wrote the scenes together. So one of the reasons that the acting is so good is because Richard Linklater just didn't hand them lines and have them rehearse it. A lot of this stuff is written by the two. 
And that's why which it's is, one of those. Which is similar what? to my dinner with Andre. Yes, Another exactly. Talk heavy. Movie. Exactly. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Uh, personally, of the three, I, I give them all five stars because I think they're all perfect. Uh, my favorite is Before Sunset, so I'm curious to see how you'd feel about that one on a rewatch. But, oh, God, it's just such simple filmmaking, such great romantic escapism, such real-sounding conversations. And Ugh. real, but also like introspective in a way that most real conversations aren't, but in a good way. In yes. a way that like a Tarantino dialogue, it, a Tarantino dialogue is where it's not, you know, it's not real. Yeah. But at the same time, you are so engaged and it's very appro approachable for a film that is entirely talking and they're talking about big ideas and stuff. And it, it yeah. could be pretentious in like an alternate version of reality, but it's not. It's it's down to earth. It never becomes about ideas per se, but just about sharing yeah. emotions and feelings and being together. And even those scenes where the dialogue does come off that way, it works because the characters are kind of like that. Hmm. They're very much like 22 year olds. <laughs> Ethan Hawke is like perfect as the, you know, wannabe writer type guy who's mm. just going to Vienna for fun. So when the conversations stray in toward to those more movie like qualities, you're like, OK, this is what this character would be saying. Julie Delpy, too. But yeah, yeah just absolutely perfect. Great. Movie. Glad you Great. enjoy it. I, I will even uh, reserve my official final estimation for when I've completed the trilogy, but I, I would strongly recommend to the, the BFI critics and directors, put one, put one of these movies on the BFI list next. You got to put some Richard, you get Richard Linklater. You got days confused boyhood. Uh, nah, the, the get rid of hey, hey, I like boyhood, but yeah, I, I, one of these, okay, it's fine. School boyhood's of rock. Fine. I'm, I'm okay. Before sunrise, before sunrise or, uh, before sunset, put one of those. One of those, one of those please. Begging. Anyway, the next movie I watched is a little movie called from 1982 uh, called Eating Raoul. It is in the oh, yeah. Nigerian collection. It's directed by Paul Bartel, who also acts in it. Uh, there's not too many. I don't think there's any other really famous actors, people, people who might know. Anyway, um, it is an interesting movie about a very dull Los Angeles couple who uh, are trying to buy their dream restaurant and uh, decide to start a scheme of uh, murdering uh, how to say this sex craved lunatics by luring <laughs> people with like hopes of sex to their apartment and then murdering them and stealing their money. Uh, awesome. It is a it is a kind very of it's a strange film. It's a very kind of low budget film. It's it's fun. Um, it is interesting in that it is kind of thematically similar to blow up, not in a plot sense, but in the sense of like uh, hedonism and decadence of a city during a specific time. Uh, so it starts out with this interesting mo montage of like uh, 1980s Hollywood. Everyone's after sex and money and no one cares about real people anymore. And it's. It goes from there. It is a very interesting, <laughs> not really a time capsule. It's kind of like a parody of Hollywood. Um, it is about Hollywood. It's not about filmmaking, though. Interest, interesting movie. Glad I watched it. Um, 
it's fine. It's kind of kind of abruptly ends, and I'm not sure what the uh, the point uh, the filmmaker was trying to get at, or if it really uh, comes together in yeah. kind of a satisfying way. Don't think it I've did, s- but I've seen this cover before, it. and the cover is very interesting. And I always assumed it was a, another food movie. It is a food movie in a way. Yes. Okay, just like Signs of the Lambs. He's a wine snob, the main character. Anyway, that's Eating Raul. And then the other movie I watched. Oh, well, the other movies I watched, we already talked about. Women in the Window and then Blow Up, Blow Out. So here's a question. Yes. Regarding our discussions today. Uh, We usually do our BFI movie second, but we could do it first this time since it is the original or we could do it second and just maintain our oh, i'm down for either up to you i don't know i don't know what i want to talk about first yeah let's, let's keep, talk about let's keep the regular order let's keep, sure let's talk about blow out. out yes i keep getting them not mixed up but confused mixed up yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes so you you recommended blow out this is a movie i haven't seen so uh how about you uh introduce it all right. Uh, well, Blow Out is a very loose. I don't want to say remake. I don't want to say retelling, but it's very loosely based on Blow Up. It centers around a a B movie sound man who, while out recording new wind sounds, uh, stumbles upon a car crash, captures the sound of it, and then he, doing some investigative work, he starts to realize it was less of a crash and more of an assassination attempt. Or well, not an attempt, an assassination, and he basically tries to get to the bottom of what happened, all while Lord Farquaad uh, tries <laughs> to cover the tracks and kill him. Uh, I this is a movie that I saw two or three years ago for the first time. I don't know what. Oh, I remember exactly what drew me to it. This is the movie that Quentin Tarantino saw, and then. Um, Realized he wanted John Travolta for Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Uh, And I can see why. Because Mm, at the time, John Travolta was, you know, Saturday Night Fever, Grease. This is very uh, against type for him. Um, And I went into it with that expectation. But three years ago, I saw it. Absolutely loved it. I think it's a very incredibly made film with an incredibly tight story. This time around, I love it even more. Interesting. Wow. It's one of my favorites, honestly. Mm. Putting it somewhere on the list. It I this is the only Brian De Palma film I've seen as well. Mm. And typically mm. I don't I can't super as we talked about before, I can't really get into uh filmmakers that I don't want to say ape Hitchcock so much, because it's a very Hitchcockian movie, but mm. I think in there's way, yeah. just enough of its own flavor that it doesn't feel like a, a retreading of Hitchcock. It's a very vibrant film from a filmmaking standpoint. And I was mm. listening to the commentary on the Criterion. I don't know. Do you have the Criterion or did you just no, I watch don't. it? I, I just watched it. The Criterion has an interview uh, recorded in 2010. Uh, and it's it's conducted by Noah Baumbach, who really likes this movie. Um, and I heard Brian De Palma talking about how basically he thinks the most boring thing in the world is coverage and shot reverse shot where every every single scene, every camera movement, every camera setup needs to 
keep up with the story thematically. And I watched that before watching it this recent time. And I just really realized just how much filmmaking flair there is. Like there's a lot of really flashy stuff, but there's a lot of really subtle stuff as well. So I'm curious to see whether or not you liked it. So blow out. I'm con- conflicted almost. Oh no. I, I oh, mean, no. For, right out of the way, right out of the bat. Uh, it's a good movie. Blood is a good movie. Like there's no, there's nothing. Uh, you can't really deny that. Um, it left me wanting more. Like, I don't think it comes together as well as as it thinks it does. And okay. so I'm, I'm curious to hear from you. Not all the elements work together, and thematically, I think it's. It, it kind of creates its theme, its thematic resonance in the last minute, five minutes of, of the film. Um, although I have a lot of, of respect and I, I loved watching it in terms of craft and visually. Um, although I think for me, it came off as more a lot of style and not a lot of substance, which is fine. Wasn't necessarily, I'm not like, uh, it wasn't a problem. Um, except. And this is the big exception because um, I do like this film and I think I, I, I'm going to give it a rewatch. I'm pretty sure I'll, I like it a little more on, on a rewatch. But I think Brian De Palma has uh, relied on music too much, <laughs> way too much. I will I, say it this. It was annoying, quite frankly. Okay. In the, in the climax of the film, I just... This is what like left me wanting more in a film about audio recording, about an audio recordist. I felt that the audio in the film was lazy at times and could okay. have used the different ways that audio is is used. With that being said, like there's some really creative ways. And I like the beginning of the film. There's a scene. Well, there is the scene, the scene where, where John Travolta is recording the audio that starts the whole thing off. Amazing scene. And like that's like. Perfect example of how Brian De Palma is, I almost want to call it like expressionistic filmmaking or like wild filmmaking. He's just like, lights, camera, let's do this, split screen, whatever, whatever works. Split screen. He's, I love he is willing to do whatever works for the scene, Um, at least like to tell it creatively and visually. Um, And that I really like about the, about the film. And, uh, and, it's really just kind of the ending didn't didn't vibe with me in See, terms of okay. its thematic yeah. closure and the music. But but these are I think so, ultimately small or yeah criticisms. I will agree in the music. Uh, I didn't think it was necessarily too much of it. Maybe I just was too engrossed in the movie itself. But the actual music itself is just it feels like Bernard Herman B sides, you know, it's not super uh, unique. It's definitely it's, it's well composed music, but yeah, in it, in its most notable scenes, it does feel overwhelming. Um, I don't I can't necessarily agree that it was used too much, but maybe I'll feel a, di- a different way to be fair. Sorry, um, I'm going to give Brian De Palma is a very competent filmmaker, very good, very he good is. filmmaker. Um, so I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt that perhaps it's it almost feels like near the end exploitative in like how much 
music it's working manipulative. And I'm almost willing to give Brian De Palma benefit of the doubt. And like, that's the point that it is over manipulating you. Um, although I didn't quite figure out why that might be the case. So, you know, an another viewing might yeah. lend some See, reason behind why that was chosen. I do agree that the 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 idea of, of a movie so much revolving around sound should play more with sound. But a lot of the, the sound elements to me weren't necessarily about the actual use of sound itself, but the way that he frames the analysis of sound. Because one thing that I love about this movie is that it is analog porn. The scenes where John Travolta is just fucking around the tapes. I can see why some people who maybe aren't as interested in the tactile nature of filmmaking of yesteryear would find that scene boring. But just watching him reversing the footage, going backwards, getting that little white pen and marking on it and then, you know, layering it or uh, syncing it up with the uh, pictures taken from the scene. It's just stuff like that where it's so like if you did that today, it would take three seconds. You do it in premiere and it wouldn't be interesting. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, there's a there's a nostalgic side to it. I never lived in that time. I can't say I prefer that stuff. I love how easy Premiere is. But those scenes in general, it's just the way those tight close ups on all these big machines that I have no fucking clue how you even work them. Those scenes to me are just what this movie's about. But as far as the ending goes, I want to bring in something that I learned from those supplements that I think really helps inform the ending, uh, because this movie, the story came about. Um, through Brian De Palma's obsession with the JFK assassination, mm -hmm. where he became super obsessed with the JFK assassination, read every single book on it. And as he was compiling and investigating and going through all of these uh, uh, resources and, uh, you know, uh, books and stuff like that, he came to the realization that it wouldn't matter because it's been done and you are against forces that are too large to go up against. It, it go. I think it's something that translates really well into the, the age of QAnon, these fucking hmm. wacko conspiracy theorists who will take any little thread and just see where they can go with it. Obviously, this has a lot more uh, is a lot more rooted in reality. But I find that idea that, you know, you're up against this unbeatable force. I find that is what the ending is about, because hmm. John Travolta is just one guy. One guy with Nancy Allen and he's, you know, he's going up against whatever forces at play are trying to take out this politician. And in the end, they win. And no, that's not a uh, that's not a happy ending. That's not an informative ending. But I do understand where he's coming from. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I disagree. I get a different sense from the film that it it isn't about greater forces in a way. Um, yeah. Like, I almost feel like it doesn't go far enough in its in its criticism. Like it had the potential to be a lot more biting in its criticism of both American politics and Hollywood. Um, in that the the ultimate like the villainy of the film is in John Lithgow, who it just kind of seems like his own agent operating separate from the people who hired him, which we see in a scene, which kind of mitigates the the feeling for me. And why I was maybe a little less uh, engaged with the ending of like in the beginning, it feels like, oh, there could be a vast conspiracy. And then we learn, oh, it's just John Lithgow just tying up Luth's ends and his employers don't don't give a shit anymore. And he kind of is going off the deep end. And so it feels less about 
a giant system oppressing Wait, who them are, and more about who are his employers who's he talking to yeah he, he has a phone call with someone i don't know yeah. i assumed it was the president um or something political people who cares yeah um which it on one hand that's good like they the the background forces the political forces are in the background and kind of shadowy figures um i just think they might be too in the background to make it feel mm, okay. like he's up against um he's up against a real system instead mm. it feels like he's up against john lithgow uh the other biting criticism that i think the film has but could be more uh, explicit in is that it, in the end a very interesting style uh, choice uh is that the spoiler alert the screams of the the main girl what's her yeah. name Nancy Allen. <laughs> Nancy Allen are used in the exploitative uh, horror, low budget horror film. Yeah. And I almost feel like it would have been like if you were to say like, oh, he's uh, making a comment about the exploitative nature of Hollywood or about the commodit uh, commoditization of violence and, and turning that into uh, a product for people to enjoy and using that. Yeah. Um, See, <laughs> which is there. My issue, though, is that if you were to like looking at it, these are just like low budget, crappy Philadelphia made movies. It's not a criticism aimed at Hollywood, which I think it very much could be a criticism aimed at a larger. Uh, force. So, like, it, you know, it, it's a smaller film than I think sometimes it feels like it is, at least thematically. I had two different interpretations of that ending. Uh, one of which being it was almost John Travolta's way of punishing himself because mm. um, he's left. That was my first whatever, however many years ago I saw it. But my second one, this most recent time. And again, I know these are low budget Hollywood or Philadelphia B movies. But in my when I watched it this time, my interpretation was that him using the voice clip for Nancy Allen was his way of sort of immortalizing her because she was kind of a no one. She was just, you know, prostitute that got killed by what now people think is a, a serial killer who killed prostitutes. She's she had no one but him. He's gone. He feels like he feels guilty that he inadvertently, you know, caused her death. So this was his attempt to immortalize her, to give her life a bigger meaning, to not let her gone go forgotten. But hmm. neither of those interpretations, I think, are backed up enough by <laughs> the movie, because the first I remember the, when I first watched it, I thought, why would he do that? Yeah, like it's that's, really that's cool because it's a really nice it's it's like one of those things where it it's a scene. It, it reminds me a lot of um, the usual suspects at the end, that big reveal. Mm -hmm. uh, but then it's a reveal that it knocks you flat on your feet the first time. Then the more you think about it, you're more like, what? <laughs> That's stupid, but I'm so I don't know. Maybe it's just the the way I felt the first time I saw it. But that ending doesn't bother me. But the more and more I think about it, it doesn't really make sense. I, but I you also have to understand like mm. that this movie, there is a lot of this movie's DNA in Under the Silver Lake. So maybe that's why <laughs> I love this movie so much. My my criticism as of it, it not going perhaps far enough or it feeling smaller than it is with regards to like 
he's not up against the system. He's more up against a person. These are more like uh, minor, not minor criticisms, but they like they don't actively harm the the film itself. Rather, they don't elevate it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like it's not like an above and beyond kind of thing. It, it It's doing what it needs to in order to tell an interesting story. It just could have been. I, I, I felt an opportunity to be. A, yeah. Have some more tension but and stakes. And the thing about this movie to me is that this script. Is a it's a good script, a few hmm. pegs away from being great. But to me, most of what makes this movie great is the filmmaking. Yeah, it's to me, it's such great filmmaking that it covers up a lot of its mistakes. One of my favorite scenes of the entire movie is that flashback sequence where we mm-hmm. see John Travolta basically wire a cop. It's just a, it's a quick little five minute scene that really kind of feels like it's out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so good that I don't mind. And that's kind of my whole thesis for the movie. A lot of questionable script decisions that are made invisible by stellar filming. Yeah. The there's another shot in the film that I too, I, I kind of pulled out near the, the second half when I was, eh, I was still engaged. I just, maybe not as much. Um, when she, the main Nancy, girl, Allen. Nancy Allen is, her and the the video guy uh that filmed the uh the assassination yeah uh john polito yes and and not he john tries, he assaults her and she knocks him out and like the scene is just bathed in red and the camera like glides up to uh the ceiling to be like an overhead shot of the room i felt that was that was fun that was just like Brian De Palma having fun filming a scene in an interesting way and not making it just standard. Well, the other yeah. great shot was, uh, I think Tarantino uses a, a similar kind of shot in Reservoir Dogs, where like it's the people are having a conversation and the camera circles around them. A lot of this is a shot that's been done a lot. What um, what scene was this? No, I was talking about Reservoir Dogs as, oh, as yeah. a the circle around shot. And what I was eventually saying is I don't like that shot. Wait, the one where wait, the one where the one in the studio where John Travolta is like running around and. Yes. And in this you don't like that shot. No, 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 no. Okay. I don't like it used in dialogue scenes. I don't like like around. Oh, it feels. Oh, okay. Excessive. This in this film is a great use of a camera shot going around and around of creating a feeling as he's running around, realizing that his tapes have been erased. That, I think, worked. That's a piece of filmmaking that uh, not always, sometimes Ryan De Palma just uses flair and flashy filmmaking just for the sake of it, which is fine. Um, but that was a case where like, I felt the filmmaking matched up with the tone and the mood of the scene yeah. in a way that enhanced it. There, there are other scenes later on in the film when you know, John Travolta is getting deeper and deeper into this conspiracy where a lot of scenes uh, are being filmed from the outside. The outside looking into the windows or above looking through like a hole in the ceiling. And uh, he was talking on the the supplements that those shots kind of match his his paranoia because it's like the camera's watching him without him knowing. Hmm. It sort of mirrors his paranoia. It's a lot of stuff like that that really elevates it. Um, but I don't know. It's just it's so much fun. So many split diopters. <laughs> yes. Brian De Palma is a fan of that. I knew that from the previous the untouchables i think i've seen yeah and i know i've seen another Brian De palma uh, but he loves his split diopter shots and the thing about split diopters is i don't usually like them 
because I feel like most split diopters, uh, for people who don't know, split diopters is the type of shot where you have one some, something really close in the foreground that's in focus on one side of the screen, and then the other side of the screen, you have something in the far background that's also in focus. Because usually when you focus on something that's so close to the camera, the background gets blurry and isn't yes. in focus. So you have to use a special filter yeah, in order to achieve a, that effect. It's a little filter that you put over the lens that sort of splits the screen in half and splits the focus in half. And the reason I typically don't like these shots is because they're done so in a way where you can very clearly see the line because there'll be like part of the center of the frame. Half of it, the depth of field would just be so shallow and the other half would just be so uh, uh, deep. And it just looks ugly because half the screen is very blurry. But Brian De Palma does his split diopters in a way that masks that line. Like the first one is when John Travolta is listening to the cops who are about to come over and talk to him. The split diopter is like right in between them on this white wall. And it's just a plain white wall and you can't really see the mm. depth of field differences because it's just a white wall. Uh, I love the one with the owl. <laughs> That's almost like a split screen. It's not. Uh, it is. A it diopter. is a split diopter. It, but there's also split screen, which. Yeah. Me and you have talked about split screen is underrated. I wish more people would use split screen. Yeah, it's so much fun. It's just fun. That's it's just a lot of fun. Blowout is fun. And, you know, as much as I was annoyed at the music, the ending is a lot of fun, visually, at least with like the the Liberty Day. It's a Liberty Day, Day celebration. And I, I'm sure there's some kind of uh, thematic or uh, symbolic meaning to the the your United States flag and all that, but there's great shot of her um, as she's being strangled and the, the US flag is in the background and then uh, John Travolta's character finds her and is is holding her and the, the fireworks. I think it's it's probably a green screen shot. Or it, a is, it is. Shot. I, I learned this time uh, that it was but it, green that's screen. That's great. Like it's it's so it over good. the top. I love it. Yeah. yeah, it's fun. It's fun. At the very least, I had fun for, with the film as much uh, as I wanted yeah. a little more more tension a little more kind of systemic uh pressure on john travolta and all that it, it's fun it, it's an entertaining film it is a very solid thriller that has just enough going for it that it's elevated past the simple thriller but not enough to be like revolutionary i guess it's a film that i love almost purely based on the filmmaking that's fair enough can't blame you i recommend it I recommend uh, it too. Yeah. Good movie. Yeah. Uh, now, shall we talk about the second? Let's talk about the second movie, which I am very curious on a few different levels because one, I know you like Blowout so much. I, so I was curious to see your reaction to the kind of original, the inspiration. It's an inspiration. The foundation, the blueprint. Yeah. yeah. Uh, of that. It, furthermore, this is your first Michelangelo Antonioni film. And he is a very interesting director. And I believe in our conversation last time I said, without having seen Blowout, I said definitely that these two films are entirely different within their filmmaking. And I was correct. They yeah. are like so they're like wildly different, but also very similar. And I also think that like genre wise, they're very different, but this is perhaps getting uh, uh, ahead of myself, uh, blow up 
is our BFI Sight and Sound Movie of the Week. It is somewhere on the list in the 60s or the 70s or the 50s. Who knows? Who cares? It's on the list. You can look it up yourself. It is from 1966, directed by Michelangelo Antonioni, who is an Italian filmmaker. He's made other movies, uh, obviously, in, in Italy. And this was his first English language film. Um, it tells the story of uh, a 1960s uh, photographer in London uh, who in Austin Powers, London, in Austin Powers, London, full on, um, who uh, is a photographer. And it's a, it's about a day in the life of him as a photographer and the things that he does. It's a, it's about his job as a photographer as much as it is about the murder that is hiding in the middle of the film. And I say hiding because it's really not about that. Even no. if, you, if you read a plot description, it it might seem like it is, but it's about the movie. If you read the plot description, the movie that you're thinking of is Blowout. Yes. Yes. Because Blo- Blowout is very much the dumb American version of this movie. Well, I was actually very happy <laughs> to make another comment about Blowout. I was happy that Blowout wasn't officially like the dumb American version because the dumb American version would have had uh everything tie up nicely at the end and like a happy ending. Uh, but, but she dies at the end of blowout. So good, good on the film for, for <laughs> sticking to the ambiguous. Thank you, Brian De Palma for killing the woman. Morally, uh, <laughs> morally ambiguous endings. And anyway, so blow up. It's a film I've, I've seen before and I have. Perhaps, a, perhaps a lot to say, perhaps too much. I don't know what we're going to get at. And I purposely, erased my my letterbox score okay i don't know if did you did you get the chance to see it before i removed it entirely yes it's four and a half originally was it oh, no I it was four remember. it was four your mm. first one was four i didn't know if you rated it again i don't know. Mm. i've seen this film three times at this point this is my interesting anyway i i yeah what'd you think of blow up i didn't hate it but it bored me to tears. <laughs> I had a feeling. I had a feeling that was I, be, I didn't know. I just had a feeling. Oh, man. Um, I want to say right off the bat, it might have been just the unfortunate wrong time to watch it. Um, but about an hour into this movie, I was praying for the credits. <laughs> it... It, I knew it wasn't going to be what I thought. I knew it wasn't going to be blowout. I know that they're very different. I know a lot of people have said that. But man, I just I didn't find anything about the movie all that interesting. Mm. It felt very Italian. <laughs> wow. Italian. Interesting. <laughs> well, OK, here's the thing about Italian uh, filmmakers is that uh, I have a love hate relationship. I find some of the the really, really good ones to, i just they don't do it for me um but i also the conformist is amazing mm. the conformist is amazing the good the bad the ugly is amazing i like the original suspiria i don't know it's a movie that i could tell had a lot going on but i, I just wasn't bothered to look deeper i wasn't mm. active enough and i blame myself for that partially I want to watch it again. I almost did watch it again today at work, but unfortunately I had uh, a last minute thing to do. Um, Uh, So that would have been a mistake. So I'm glad you didn't. Okay. Um, I'm I'm glad you're, you should leave it 
simmer for a little bit um, or at the very least let it fade from your mind uh, and to go back in just knowing where it goes because I think the biggest issue with blow up uh, is the expectation of the audience that it's going to be something other than it what it is um, like you think you think it's going to be a plot driven film based on the description and all that it is a, a film with a murder in it so you think it's oh okay so there's going to be stuff happening nothing happens essentially uh, see which i is didn't even point. go in with that expectation i knew from a few people that it is not at all about the murder i figured that but it is it is and it isn't yeah uh the the murder is the the backbone of the film um but like like your backbone, it's surrounded by flesh and a bunch of other things that still important, but it's not particularly the, the focus when you when you look at it from uh, the outside perspective. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, the first time I watched Blow Up and I have had an interesting journey together in that I at Zia, Zia Records, great store. Um, and if you have a Zia it. Records account. For every, I think, $13 for some reason, you get a point. And every point uh, is equal to a dollar amount. So like if you have five points and you get something that's $5, you can get that $5 thing half off. Um, and so like a uh, obsessive buyer of movies that I am, I was saving up all of my points to buy a Criterion Blu-ray, which is $30 and to get that half off at $15. Um, and I did. And I was always curious as to what what that movie was going to be. And it was Blow Up. Blow Up was oh, okay. the, the movie I got half off at uh, at Zia. And this was after I, I had seen a couple of uh, Antonioni's films. I'd had interesting relationships with each one of them. Um, and so I, I watched it. I was like, great. I got a discount. This is awesome. And I watched the movie and I was like, well, this is fine. This is okay. Kind of disappointed in the film. Um, And then the next time I watched it, it was better. Like I was more invested in it. And then this time around, I I think it is a masterpiece. (laughs) I think it genuinely, I it's, it's one of those movies where I, I'm not sure it is very approachable. And the funny thing is, is that's indicative of the of Antonioni's entire filmography. Like my relationship with this film is very similar to my relationship with uh, La Ventura, his other film, um, which I, I watched the first time. I was like, OK, cool. And then on subsequent viewings, I'm like, this is one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, and we'll get to it on the BFI list eventually. OK, but blow up. Ironically enough, I think is his most approachable film. Um, awesome. it's also it's also the film that uh that Antonioni uh, is most successful financially when it was released. And part of the reason part of I'm having it like a difficult time kind of grappling with explaining why on subsequent viewings it works so well for me. Um like there's something intangible there still that I, I can't quite explain. And but one of the reasons like like I know it's a it's a case of you need to you need to intellectually engage with Antonioni's films. That's the case across the board, um, because the way he films 
is very symbolic and like the meaning of the film is not in the plot, but in like everything behind the themes and everything is representative of something else. So it's not a, it's a film that's not about itself. If that makes sense. It's about the ideas that it's trying to explore. That's, that's how I felt at the beginning because it opens with like clowns in a car Mm -hmm. (laughs) and immediately Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, that's gotta be something. And then they come back at the end and that's where I realized like, okay, every little scene was some sort of metaphorical puzzle. And I was not, I was not watching actively enough. So that's why I don't want, I, I'm like, I'm abstaining from rating it. I'm abstaining from saying I liked it or didn't like it because so much of this just flew over my head. And it wasn't until about halfway through that I realized I was watching it wrong. But I, by that point, I had so little to grasp onto what I'd seen before that I just thought, okay, I'm going to rough it through the rest of it. I'm going to let it all sit. And there are definitely moments that have just over the course of a single day start to uh, formulate in my head. But I still have little to no mental framework. Yeah, it's it is a movie that I think is very subtle it's not like one of those the reason why i think it's so good at least on on a rewatch um is that it's not obvious with what it's trying to say or with anything it's it's any of the ideas it's it's exchanging in and like unlike some films that could like come off as pretentious i don't think it does and Mm -hmm. interesting enough like i think there's plenty of people who and i think at this point i've gotten to the place where i i like the story like i think it's an interesting story I wasn't in that place when I first watched it and I'm not That's sure I'm at. everyone will would be or wouldn't be. But eventually I've gotten on board with the surface level story. Um, but I already like even before that, I started engaging and liking what was going on behind the scenes. And. It is it's it's hard to to recommend it to someone who doesn't want to actively think about the movies they're watching. Um, but at the same time, I'm. This is why, like, I'm kind of glad we're watching this one first in Antonioni's filmography because yeah. it is a training session. It is approachable, and regardless of what you think of it, even if you don't end up liking it, it will at the very least train you to think it, it, the way that Antonioni approaches his filmmaking work, so that it won't be as difficult later on when we do Le Eclise and La Ventura. Speaking of which, uh, you know what else this movie has a lot in common with? Once again, it's very similar to Under the Silver Lake. Yeah, I think it is. It's similar because it's it's about a young horny guy (laughs) who is uh, who's into this mystery that may or may not be even a mystery. But he goes from scene to scene. There's other young horny people doing eccentric things. Mm -hmm. And I think it was around the the scene with um, the Yardbirds that I realized Mm. that's what was going on. Which, by the way, I don't know if you know, but uh, the guy on the lead guitar, that was Jimmy Page. I know nothing about music. Oh, Jimmy Page is the lead guitar player for Led Zeppelin. Uh, uh, Led Zeppelin was formed in like the early 70s. This is five mm -hmm. or six years before when he was with the band The Yardbirds. But it was just funny seeing him. I really appreciate some of the behind the scenes stuff of this film. 
of like learning about all the research that Antonioni did because obviously he's Italian and he he came Very to much. England to kind of like soak up the culture and everything that was going on in the 60s and it, I just he's described as someone who um is very like very italian like wearing impeccably dressed fancy suit italian someone who's just uh, a serious kind of gentleman kind of figure who seems almost above all the kind of um madness sexual madness that's happening in blow uh, in blow up um <laughs> but i just find it funny of him like wandering around uh london and like taking it all in and I did hear like he did go to concerts of like bands that were playing and he did go to a, a Pink Floyd concert back then. And I just find like the image of a uh, well-dressed Italian man uh, just standing, <laughs> observing in his very intellectual way, observing the crowd in a uh, uh, in concerts in uh, the swinging London as it is. You know, halfway through this movie, uh, the, for like the first half, I thought that the lead a- character, lead actor. Was the guy from Clockwork Orange? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know why. I Apparently, that. he's been in a lot. I don't know anything that he's been in, but I, I... yeah, I looked it up at later. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I was listening to a, a uh, interview with him on the way home, and this is when I started getting the feeling that uh, Chandler might not be quite into it. Uh, granted, I wasn't into it when I first watched it, so that was the other reason. Um, but the actor himself, the main actor. Um, after his first screening of the film, uh, Antonioni turned to him and was like, you didn't like it, did you? And the main actor was like, no, I don't understand what the fuck was going on. So even like even the main <laughs> actor, oh, I figured the, the guy who who is in essentially every single frame of the film didn't get it and didn't like it the first time he watched it and on subsequent viewings has learned to appreciate it. Um, and I don't know, I, I'm, it's hard to really explain. Like, I don't want to make it seem like it's some kind of like artsy fartsy film because I, I, I don't think it is. Um, it's, it treads it's, close to that, but not quite. It's not artsy fartsy in the way it's presented. It's pretty, it's, you know, it's pretty, it's filmed. The cinematography is solid. It's not super expressionistic. It's, it's very low key, uh, but it's artsy fartsy again in the, I, in the, in the way that nothing happens. <laughs> But again, it's not like, I don't know, I don't want, I'm not calling it artsy fartsy. I could see why people yeah. would think that it's not like a Bergman. It's not like no. Lynch. It's, it's very, it's grounded. It's real. It's logical, but it's meandering. It's meandering in a way that I understood had intent, but I still don't know what that intent is. So I'm curious to hear what, what is it? What is it about? What is it about to you? What does it mean? So this blow up is one of the great, like if we're, it's like a subgenre of, of movies about making art um, and by extension, filmmaking itself. Um, this is a movie that is about photography as an art form and explores what that means. Um, in, in a way that I don't think is immediately obvious to a lot of people, but um, has a lot to say there. And I'm I'm frustrated because I'm remaining vague because I don't want to go on a whole tangent, and I will eventually. Yeah. But um, 
it's a film about photography, which I, I think it like hands down, it's the best film about photography. Then again, I can't really think of many others at the moment. Uh, Rear um, Window. Mm, it, that's not about photography. No, no, I'm just kidding. like it has a photographer, but it's not about photography. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can't think of anything. Um, I'm trying Master. to think of like another uh, example. Like, <laughs> there's plenty of movies that have like, oh, there's a film that's being made in the background, but it's not about filmmaking. It's just yeah. incidentally because that's you know, you're making a film. Why not throw filmmakers in there? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of movies about that. But in, in terms of photography, I think it's the only movie that's engaging with on any kind of intellectual level what it means to be a photographer um, and the ethics of taking photos. Um, and it sounds dull and it's not. I, it's just not. And one of the reasons that. It's such an interesting movie and it's. Part of it is that. It's a movie I don't really think a lot about. Like The Conformist has kind of been like working its way through my mind of just like thinking about it over the past couple of weeks after watching it. This is a movie where like I watch it and I'm engaging with it intellectually a lot and then I kind of drop it and I have to actively like bring it up in my mind to start thinking about it again. Um it's not it's the fact that it, it it's main it, it's engaging you intellectually and not emotionally. It does have some emotional resonance for me eventually. Um, but that's perhaps why in its intention, it doesn't stick in your mind because visually and emotionally, that's the stuff that remains you think about, uh, that you remember. Like if you remember any film you love, you remember the scenes and the emotions you feel. And that's not what Antonioni's going, going for here. The other thing that, uh, like for like the, the two big, elements of the movie uh why i find it interesting is the photography element which tangentially relates to film making as well um but the other element is it is a portrait of swinging culture in the swinging 60s of london of like it it is a portrait it is a picture <laughs> it's a of photo. the culture in London at that particular time, which is why it has so much of the rooted in the time period that was made in the construction in London, the booming construction, the the styles and the fashion and the the culture, the hedonistic culture, uh, sex and drugs and music and color vibrancy, uh, but also like the dull background of London. I find that juxtaposition very interesting that London is still this kind of dray grab dray gray drab city. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but juxtaposition juxtaposed against like the colorful cars. It's hard to make outfits. London look flashy in the same way that Paris is because it's always fucking right. cloudy, but it is very flashy. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah. And. It's almost like they're rebelling against their background. Yeah. And th there's a way in which these two things kind of work off of each other. And it. I guess to summarize it succinctly to try to sell it is it is a philosophical film on what it means to. Take a picture and by take a picture, I mean, like the the act of recording real life. Yeah. And what what is a picture like? Is it a reflection, a real reflection of real life or is it merely a 
fictionalized version of life. Like, can the photo, can any photo image stand in for reality? And what what we do when we mistake the fact, like the line between a photograph and what is real is blurred. And <laughs> I don't know. Like, there's a lot more I can say. There's a lot of notes that I took on it. I'm just not sure where to begin. And I don't want to like keep going on about all that kind of stuff. But yeah. A any other thoughts from you? Give me a moment to to think in peace. You know, I don't know. I feel like the acting the wise, visually, I don't. Oh, know. visually, it's interesting. It's not, you know, it's not flashy, but I know it's not meant to be. Um, I enjoy the scenes of him just taking pictures because I just, I don't know, I like the, the tactile nature of that old kind of equipment. Um, the two scenes stick out to me. And the one, the closest I came to feeling or thinking anything is a scene early on where he talks to his painter friend, where he basically says that, like, when I'm painting, I don't feel anything until time passes by and I realize what it was about. And at that point, I'm like, oh, maybe that's what they're trying to say about the movie. I don't know. And it's it's something that I felt that was the closest that came to being about anything. And the other scene that sticks out in my mind is, again, the scene with the yard birds, mm -hmm. um, because I just found it is it just a funny scene to me where it's just a rock concert. and Everybody's standing perfectly still, <laughs> <laughs> just perfectly still watching him. The amp has bad feedback and I have no idea what that scene means and what it was about. But I thought, OK. Um, and I also really like the end scene with the tennis and the, and the mm -hmm. mimes. But again, it's one of those things where I'm like, I sense something here. There's a noticeable change in our protagonist who is willingly going along with this game. He knows knows isn't real. I don't know what it means in the in the context of the film. though. Hmm. It's a very cryptic movie to me. In a way yes. that stylistically does not feel it would be as cryptic as it is. So one of the reasons why I, I have grown in my appreciation of the film is that it it very clearly does have a, a character arc for its main character, which it I, does. I am a big supporter of the fact that your people need to change. Something needs to change in your film in order to to justify the story unless you know, you're Lewin Davis. Yes, but that that is a story of of change and return. Sort yeah. of of the it it makes the the it's physically about trying to change and emphasizing the fact that nothing does change. Mm -hmm. um, how, how to come at this? So it, I do think it's very like interesting story wise. It is about like a photographer and and his job and everything and about halfway well, like a third of the way through the film he takes photos of a couple in a park uh getting down to the actual plot the business of the film spoiler alert i'm not sure it makes any difference uh i think it, i think it would be good to go into the film blind just so you can experience it but just just know that ultimately it doesn't matter what what it is about so much as it's exploring ideas Anyway, so he takes photos of a couple in a park and this is the plot, the, the main stuff that happens. And 
the the woman of the couple she doesn't want her photo photo taken and asks for the photos back and he refuses goes back to his studio and he uh prints out the photos and in a scene that is uh mirrored exactly but not filmmaking wise in blow up blow out there's both two scenes of of the artist using their medium and like uh turning the raw audio the raw uh film into something that they can explore that eventually reveals uh a murder uh, in the case of blow up um and it's a great sequence filming wise um but it eventually uh his film is is stolen from him and he loses the body and everything and it's like the murder never even happened and at the end he he enjoys a game of uh fake tennis between uh, a bunch of mimes that's like what it's about um for the audience obviously <laughs> um it at least on a character level for him the film is about the the emptiness of the culture in london and I think it it is a translation. I think emptiness of culture, of consumer culture in general, of um, the fashion and the sex and the drugs and consuming and entertainment for entertainment's sake. And we have this main character, this photographer, who is demanding. He's not a particularly good person, which I think is one of the reasons why I find it interesting to watch him is that he is kind of shitty kind of a terrible person he he's a bit bit of a misogynist uh he orders people around um but in every scene he is pursuing something that he wants it's always i want photos of this person i want you to do this i want a propeller mm. for no reason um i want to take a photo of this couple in the park they don't want their photo taken fuck them i'm taking it anyway um, and the interesting thing is that the, the movie is making a point of like, he just keeps going. Like he's always on as a person and he is always moving from one thing to the next and everything is, he wants something, but it's, it's an empty want. He, he immediately goes on to something else because it doesn't hold his attention. And the, the real interesting character and dramatic irony of the film is that he finally finds something that is interesting that matters that really matters in this this photograph of a murder that that has happened um so he begins to find uh construct meaning out of his work um in a way and uh in a, in a moment of dramatic irony uh and in almost punishment for him he loses his work that the one thing he cares about it gone poof and the He's so focused on the photograph. He doesn't bother reporting it to the police. He doesn't care. He ca- doesn't really care that there's a murder. He cares about the fact that he's photographed a murder. And he treats that as the real, as a substitute for what has actually happened. And when he goes back to find the body, he finds that that's gone too. Um, and that he's like, he's missed his opportunity to. Uh, he's got nothing. Do anything. Right. And this is. um like it is a deconstruction at the end of his desire for 
an uh, of photography um that uh, the ultimate failure from him and then it is a subsequent reconstruction in the very last scene of the mimes playing tennis um So I guess it's ultimately getting at the fact that that when you take images or photography, it's it would be wrong to say that it is it can substitute for reality itself, um, deconstructing the the illusion that we often look at an image and think, oh, that's a place, that's a thing, but it is it's an empty thing. Um, it's not the same thing as being in that place or doing the thing or solving a murder or whatever. Um, the image can't stand in for reality. Um, but the enjoyment is perhaps in the imagination of such a thing. And that in the very end, it is a kind of reconstruction of, of in a very uh, metaphorical way of art, of filmmaking, of photography, uh, in that it's an illusion. Like the, the reality, the tennis ball isn't there. There's nothing there, but that doesn't mean that like, you can't find enjoyment from it, A, and that the physical, like the act of looking at a photograph is representative of something. Um, and it's what you make of it. You can interpret it, but don't treat it as like the real thing. It's hard to explain. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not good at this. Like I'm not good no, at, at I, explaining. I don't think, I don't even think it's that. I think it's, I've read like two or three different reviews mm -hmm. of this movie that explain why it's so great. And I'm still like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, and, like that's that's the issue. Like I, and part of it is, it feels a bit not um, like a not like a secret or not like gatekeepy or anything like that. But it, it feels kind of special of being yeah. able to like figure out what the movie is about because it's not like it is a puzzle, but it isn't. Like it's not obviously a puzzle. Like there's some movies, like a Christopher Nolan film. You watch one of the, you watch Tenant. And it's like, oh, this is a puzzle. I am supposed to figure something out. We're supposed to understand it more. And I have to rewatch it to understand that. Like uh, Charlie Coffin's movies. Yeah. This doesn't feel like it. Like it, it feels more like it is a character study, which it is in a way of the main character. And that there's stuff under the surface that isn't obvious um, that you can find. Um, almost like See, Russian. It's a Russian nesting doll of content. That element did work for me because by the end with the tennis, the, the, the tennis scene is where I first thought, OK, mm -hmm. I, I, I have the sense that there's been a whole arc. I feel he has changed. But then I thought, how? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know he has. But mm -hmm. then I'm trying to pinpoint what exactly changes in him and what brought about that change. And I'm like clueless. But again, by the end, I have that feeling. I feel that he's a different person. Just like a lot of this stuff, I feel like I have an interpretation, but then I don't. I don't know. It's it's one of the very few movies I think I've ever seen in my life where I am absolutely clueless. Interesting. I have nothing to say. I have no I, nothing. Hmm. No interpretation. That's that. I think that's fascinating. That's fun. I, I like that <laughs> response. It's hard to have a conversation with that response. It is, um, but <laughs> that's I, why I'm I glad you are a little like more passionate. Yeah. Uh, 
perhaps one last metaphor. And the interesting thing about the film is I think it, it, it does like it has overarching themes, but I think a lot of the individual scenes can be interpreted on their own to arrive at the, the conclusion. Like it's not all you don't need to find every little clue in every scene to piece it together. You can just look at one scene that is perhaps emblematic of the whole thing. And the scene with the uh, the concert and the guitar. Um, to analyze that scene in particular, I would say that the the movie is about signifiers, uh, about things representing other things. Um, uh, like, so the guitar, so in the scene, the, the musician destroys the guitar and then throws it to the crowd. And Jeff they, Beck. And they uh, all go wild and they want a piece of the guitar. So this is, again, tying back into like the hedonistic nature of the culture of the, the superficiality of it. They just, just, they just want it. Why not? Um, but I think the film is making the point that they are treating the guitar as emblematic of the song and the band itself. Like they want to, and the song, the song themselves, they have no reaction to. Right. The art is nothing to them, but then but once they want the art the physical, is tangible. Yeah. Right. Okay. Turning the, the, the intangible into the tangible, the obviously a, a scene of nature, a scene in the in the park into the tangible, which is the photograph. And yes. the the fact of um, consumer culture, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, of wanting the physical thing, but not the, the real thing. And I think it's also pretty uh, symbolic, although it doesn't necessarily feel like it, that the song keeps on playing just fine. Yeah. As he's destroying his guitar. See, like mm -hmm. the thing See, exists still, but no yeah. one's paying attention to it because they just want the physical object. And it's, you know, it's like the photo. Um, well, you could also extrapolate that into culture because it is a cultural document about when London, when it was made. And that is a the song <laughs> is a is it could be seen as a representation of the culture. But it isn't the same thing as culture. And with the photo, it would be wrong to consider it. It is a. a yeah. As like a true reflection of reality, or rather, it is a kind of a superficial object yeah. that stands in for. Reality. See, going off that consumerism angle, there's another scene that I now find interesting in retrospect uh, the scene where he buys the propeller. Hmm. It's like he needs it. He, he fishes it out of the wall. It's like the only thing he wants. He, he's going out of his way to purchase the propeller he wants to put in his car, but it won't fit in his car. So he settles for getting it delivered. And then when it finally gets delivered, it's like he completely forgot about it. <laughs> it's one of those things that it's head there. It's almost like he forgot it was coming. It goes into his apartment. It just mm -hmm. they put it on the floor and they forget about it because it's not about what it is. It's about having it. It's yeah. about, you know, he needs to have it once that that satisfaction of having it is done he moves on to the next thing that he wants to have so i'm i'm unlocking it piece by piece a little yeah. bit i think i just needed a sort of i needed a just a, a thematic blueprint to go in a, a, a map if you will so i can navigate each scene and see how it ties in and it's it's only now that it's starting to surface a little bit hmm and I I would agree with you from earlier that you're you're talking about the the line that his friend had, um, that it's only later that meaning appears. 
Yeah. And this interesting thing of as a, you know, a photographer myself, I'm often aware of this and not really ashamed, but I'm like when I'm going places, speaking of, uh, I was just on a trip to Oregon. Um, sometimes I have this, this I'm torn between, I really want to get a photography of this beautiful scene, but at the same time, like, the photo isn't the same thing as just being there and enjoying it. If you're, if you're the taking sunset. the time to set up the photo, you're not experiencing it for real. And the photo might not even come close to what you could be experiencing in that. And, and it won't. It, it's impossible for a photo to do that, even if it's a great photo, I think. The, yeah. Like, photography is a, it changes reality. We think of it as a representation of, of the real things, of the facts of something. Um, but it's not. And yeah, so I guess the other reason why I like this more is that like in the past couple of years, I've gotten more in touch with photography and been doing a lot of that. Um, so I, I find it personally applicable or at the very least reflexive on, you know, the work that I'm currently doing and all that kind of stuff. The photography scenes are fun. Yeah. I did like the little click. <laughs> nice little click. There's a great, great tactile nature to old film cameras. A lot smaller than I thought it would be. Yeah. Uh, last little comment of like an example of like things that are representations, uh, like a scene that is interesting thematically, but doesn't necessarily have to connect to everything. Uh, very early in, in the film, he is our main photographer guy is taking a photo as having a photo shoot with a model and the scene is very clearly linking photography to sex. Like it's a sex. Very scene. clearly it is. It's, a, it's He's a on top scene. of her in a way he, he, there is a, this, there's a visible climax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's early yeah. on. That's like the first scene. Yeah. Mm, second. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, and like, to even further go like there's tons of this stuff like you just keep finding ways in which things that are real and tangible are turned into are commoditized are turned into representations of those things which is he's making a book about real london and you get very brief glimpses of the photographs and you see like photographs of real like poverty people suffering it's he's it's described as like a violent book and it's i mean it's very interesting like all this trouble and turmoil and stuff he's like raw feelings and emotion he's trying to capture with his photography is ultimately turned into just this commodity this photography book that is is for other people to buy and enjoy and think that they've experienced or looked at these kinds of things but they haven't it's not the same thing as being there or anything like that i agree anyway oh i had, an, I had something to say now i forgot also a connection with uh, blowout is oh. the use of wind in the trees. Both, yeah. both scenes when he's taking the photo and John Travolta is taking is uh, recording the sound. They both take place in parks with the wind very prominently featured in the, in the, in the trees. Yeah. It's one of those things where uh, I feel like most movies that are this cryptic, they use powerful striking imagery to let the audience know that what you're seeing this particular moment has meaning this doesn't 
nothing there are no visual signifiers to let the audience know that you this is what you should be focusing on this has meaning this is indicative of what the movie's about it's all very matter of fact it's all very rooted and real but it's just the sort of how it all plays out in your head afterwards mm. it's it's very odd it, it's so it's asking so much of you but it's not begging in a lot of hmm. ways yeah it's it's odd it's i've never seen a movie like it yeah no yeah that's antonioni i don't i don't know of any filmmaker that's quite like antonioni and it'll be interesting to interact with his other films particularly la ventura which is like if you think this is like opaque in terms of what it's trying to get at um that that is a film that very infamously caused booze and walkouts at con uh but then good old i think it was true foe and our, our friends from the french new wave were like no guys this is this is the shit this is great <laughs> and it is laventure is the most Truffaut. interesting film where it's like every shot is just littered with meaning like the sh the framing and the composition is the meaning but it doesn't feel like that at all like you can entirely ignore it and that's what you do on the first watch. And then on subsequent viewings, you're like, wait, there's a whole, there's a lot of other stuff going on under the surface. Um, and See, I think, this movie didn't feel littered with meaning to me. Right, no, that's what I'm trying to get at. It's hard to explain, oh, okay. but like it, all of Antonio's work. And I'm, I'm just trying to get at the fact that La Ventura is so dense. And yet you, you do not notice it whatsoever. And it, it is just like you watch it like, what did I watch? What was the point of that? Anyway, I, I find it very interesting. Antonioni is a filmmaker for me. I don't know. Like it, it's just I like that of the, the 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 surface level of the film being interesting and feeling kind of artsy, but also just kind of there. But then getting the chance to interact with it in a way that doesn't demand your interaction. I like that style, and I, I think. The more I watch Antonioni's films, especially Blow Up, because his other films are very clearly stylistically beautiful, but this one less so. But the more I watch it, the more I realize how like controlled the image is in every single scene, and the the choices. Like if 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 Blow Out is very much an expression of Brian De Palma, he's choosing all the different means and expression of filmmaking. And it's like, it's expressive. It's uh, expressionistic. He's just choosing whatever works and colors and lights. This mm -hmm. is very controlled and almost like modernistic. Uh, like it's a piece of modernism, postmodernism. That's it. <laughs> the, the dreaded postmodernism. I still have no idea what that word means. I won't even try. <laughs> no one does. Uh, I, I don't want to go into more. I could just, I could kind of fumble <laughs> my way through a definition but i don't want to i'm not not the best at explaining this stuff but anyway mm -hmm. ah another very emblematic line that might not appear so the, the the model at the very beginning the sex scene model uh the photography sex scene model she says oh i'm going to paris and then later on she appears in the film in the um like the drug the party house and he recognizes her and he says, I thought you were supposed to be in Paris. And then she says, I am in Paris. Meaning you don't, it's very subtle in the film. You'd have to like, it only is apparent on like 
Bruce right? like the, <laughs> the the illusion like a lot of the film is talking about like the the illusion of life and oh, okay art and stuff like that but uh, that i keep thinking of the the end scene the last line in the film being there completely unrelated but also the very last line of uh, of that film is uh, life is a state of mind which i feel like this this film is kind of dealing uh, dealing with but in a very different way than that film interesting anyway i like it i think it should be on the bfi list uh but i can i wrestle with it because it's kind of not exactly uh, approachable but i think in terms of the fact that it is a movie about photography which is unique and the fact that antonioni is so interesting in the way that he deals with ideas and his filmmaking i think it's it's a very very well-made movie i abstain i'm not gonna say it deserves it i'm not gonna say it doesn't deserve it i don't have i don't understand it enough to make that decision i'd probably put it lower like i'm not saying this yeah kind of like all-time masterpiece i think it's yeah near the bottom of that list but i think it it's doing like I know uniqueness in and of itself isn't uh, enough of a quality to get on the list, but I think it's doing what it's doing well enough that it justifies its its place here. Did uh, tangent mm. was brighter summer day on the list or do we, do we just do that for fun? No, brighter summer day was on the list. Okay. Interesting. Well, Hey, good. Well, I have, I have free time this Saturday. So I thought to myself, I'm going to rewatch a long movie. Because, you know, usually I don't have that much free time. So I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe rewatch Seven Samurai. Maybe I'll rewatch Brighter Summer Day. Maybe I'll rewatch An Elephant Sitting Still. Still don't know. Hmm. Figure it out. Yeah. I I don't know what's next. I don't know where I've put my list. We'll figure it out. We'll do something. I know we have somewhat in the future. We have uh, Goodfellas. And a woman under the under the influence. There's only two I know. We'll figure it out. Another episode of Split Take Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you got it all the way, uh, let us know what you thought of Blow Up and Blow Out. Uh, blow Up and Out, as I like to call the both of them. And uh, where what are what is the meaning of both both of them? I think that's a valid question. I still don't know what the meaning of Blow Out is. I think there's more to to interact with that film and there's i think there's always more to interact with uh, blow up so let us know what you think of the of the movies which do you like better we didn't even bring up the conversation which we shouldn't don't comment chandler please but that is uh, <laughs> okay that is another in like this trilogy of art art discovers murder oh you mean films. the con- okay that one yeah yeah i mean it, it i think it is a very clear like if you're looking for a, a triple feature or yeah, like they they form a kind of cohesive trilogy. Uh, they do. Although they've they been do. directed by different people, and they're all very different films, each in their own right. Anyway, split take podcast. I don't, I don't know how to finish these things. Split take podcast. That's what. Bye. That's all you need. Yeah. But see ya.